President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief... Go to America, go to He will fall in fire. Because cable's now. I think cable history is exciting. And personally, I believe this is such a wonderful industry. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Head End, the Cable Center's podcast series featuring the industry's visionaries and leaders sharing their unique insights and experiences. I'm your host, Luke Woodruff. The content presented in this series is edited from the audio and video recordings found in the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral and Video History Project. Today's podcast, Women Trailblazers. We feature three women who broke through what traditionally had been, and to some extent still is, the male-dominated cable business. And not only did they shatter gender barriers, they have served as advocates and mentors for both men and women throughout their careers. Together, they are responsible for inspiring hundreds, if not thousands, to bring their talents to cable, rise through the ranks, and make their own successful contributions to the industry. Sheila Nevin's educational background was in English literature and theater, but she found herself drawn to television and to telling the extraordinary stories of ordinary people. After her early career working for several employers, including the U.S. Information Agency, PBS, CBS, and Time Life Films, Nevins found her home at HBO in 1979, where she was hired as the fledgling Pay Network's first director of documentaries and given the freedom to produce them with her own unique approach to storytelling. Almost 40 years and more than 500 films later, as president of HBO Documentary Films, Nevins is still flourishing with a body of work that has earned scores of Emmys, Oscars, and Peabody's. This interview was filmed in July 2001. And now, Women Trailblazers. Sheila, we're going to talk about your career, uh, you know, primarily at HBO. You've been here for, for many years. But I really want to start and, and ask you the, quite the following question. You've talked a lot about in some of your documentaries, your, your approach in terms of getting the audience involved, giving the context, like the whole question of uh, Holocaust footage to open up your, your survivor story and um, the, the torso washing up in the beach showing things, the dead children. So I want to ask you just to get started to give us something that puts you in context. So when we go through your, your career, we have a sense of who you are, who we're talking to. You mean, why do I open well, you, provocatively? Yeah, right. Who are you? What, what, what drives you? Well, I mean, if people wear two bracelets, I wear five. Um, do they have labels? No, I think that if you don't notice what's about to happen that probably won't happen for you. And um, I think I've always felt that television has to open in a very, or a television program has to open in a very arresting way so that you can grab an audience that has a refrigerator and a, you know, a washing machine and a telephone. It's not like the theater where you're sitting in darkness and you're captive or like a theatrical movie. Uh, you have to demand attention. Um, and you have to be different, and you have to be out there and direct and affronting and honest and brash. Otherwise, it's very easy to go to any of those other things in someone's home, because after all, you are someone, an uninvited guest in a home, um, or at least you're auditioning all the time. And um, so I always try to make the opening of all shows arresting, so that you won't leave. 
Definitely. This is somewhat, I know you have a you know, somewhat theatrical background. You went mm -hmm. to uh, high school performing arts in yes. New York, mm -hmm. uh, Yale Theater School. Talk a little bit about your well, background. Well, it's interesting and, because it probably it's the differences that make me feel differently about television. When you go to theater, you have a captive audience. They've paid and they're in the dark and they have only one place to look. When you do television, you really are in a sort of whirling dervish business. You have to stop it, stop the turning dial, you know, stop the surfing somehow. And um, so it's the differences that make me approach television in a different way. The things that are similar, I think, are that the television is a theater, it is a stage, but it's a stage with a lot of competition. And so I approach it differently, although I approach it in a way that stresses the performance of the people, no matter how real they are, no matter what they're going through. Um, I look at people almost as actors in their own life. And um, I'm most moved by people who play the part of their life with bravado, um, negative, positive, heroic, dangerous, sexual. Um, so I, I think that theater has been very, very influential. On the other hand, I think it has both made pluses, things that I've carried with me, and things that I have known I couldn't carry with me. Um, the, the people that go to the theater in the main, other than musicals or whatever, but it's the top percentage of people, or people on a holiday. Um, television is every day. It's like cereal and milk. And you have to make that everyday occurrence spectacular. And yet at the same time, you have to keep that humanity going. So um, I think theater, but I live in television. And um, I try to make the marriage as compatible as possible. Um, but then Don so knew Al here. Perlmutter. And Al Perlmutter was producing some stuff at Channel 13 in New York. Which is the PBS station. Yeah, and then I started to work for him, and then I wound up working on The Dream Machine, which was probably the seminal experience in my life, because it was Why television television without a narrator. Like, See, we made these pieces about various subjects about America, and we were waiting to find who would be the narrator. And we just suddenly didn't have enough money to find a narrator. And I had seen a film that was the history of the United States in three minutes by Chuck Braverman. It was real fast. And we couldn't, at the end, we'd spent so much money, we couldn't afford a narrator. So um, <laughs> I said to Alva Day, why don't we just do that ta -ta 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 in between the pieces? And he said, okay, let's do it. And I said, and I'll go out on the street and I'll interview people about what they think about the American dream. And so... I did the American Dream interviews, and then we did these quick cuts about American history or whatever the subject was of the picture, the, the story that was following. Just a bridge. Just because we yeah. didn't have a narrator. Yeah. It wasn't like a lot of ideas. It's not like someone said, oh, I got a great idea. It's usually this doesn't work, and this doesn't work, and this doesn't work, and that seems to work, and then it really works well. Um, I don't know if that's how they discovered penicillin, but that's sort of... Well, they did. It was an accident. Wasn't it a moment? Uh, a lot of discoveries are accidents. Well, I mean, you know, everybody... And all the critics talked about this brilliant bridging device that we had on the Great American Dream Machine, and it was, it was an accidental last-minute 
ditch effort to bridge pieces because we couldn't afford at that time the likes of a Walter Cronkite or a Dan Rather. So rather than compromise with a narrator, we wound up visually and with ordinary people on the street. And I think that's when my love affair began with ordinary people. Because I would go out and ask them all kinds of questions. I would go up and down 72nd Street with a film crew and just ask them questions. And I hired the Maisels because I thought the greatest film I'd ever seen was a sales salesman. And uh, so Al Maisels and David Maisels was then alive. I mean, I think they thought they didn't know what I was doing because it wasn't real verite. But I would just talk to people and on the street. And you hired the Maisels to do Man on the Street Yes, movies. yes. I asked Al Perlmutter if he would let me hire them because that was the only name I knew in real people. I didn't know really very much at that point. I still didn't know very much, but I really didn't know very much then. And um, so we went back and forth, and we went to Washington, and we went to California, and we just talked to people about their dreams. And it was phenomenally interesting. Because if you really wanted to know the answer, they told you some amazing stories. And I think that was probably the most important experience. The Great American Dream Machine, you had a lot of experience doing these, you know, so-called man-in-the-street interviews. People, you would find people would open up under those circumstances. Yes, people want to tell you something. Everybody has a story, and everybody has a struggle, and life is very, very difficult, even for people who laugh all the time. And I think that, you know, the fascination with reality programming for me, or at least the kind of reality programming that we like to do here, is that the way people live their lives is worth telling and retelling. And all kinds of people are interested in how people live their lives. You don't have to be, we never do the lives of celebrities because, not because they're not interesting, but because the man next door has an equally as interesting life. The trouble is, how do you make the audience interested in the man next door? I mean, that's the challenge. Because once he starts telling the truth about what he's had to live through, or what he's lost or gained or laughed at or cried at. You can hook somebody, but, um, you know, that's the thing, getting them in there, getting them to watch it. So how did you wind up working at CBS and Don Well, then I went to CTW and worked on children's shows and wrote children's shows for them. I joined the Writers Guild and I wrote stuff children's shows with this research. They used to research and research and have meetings and bagels and experts and meetings and meetings and I'd like to do things so I didn't last there very long I mean I didn't leave I never left but the f- show was funded by the National Science Foundation and um, I remember thinking when I bought furniture for this little house we had in the country that it had been funded by the National Science Foundation it was like two years of research before we ever the show happened the show actually did happen when I was gone maybe happened because I left and it was called 321 Contact but I went from that CTW I heard about a job at CBS and I had to get out of there I couldn't go to any more meetings and um, so I left 321 Contact um, right after this kid that I was filming found a dinosaur fossil which is very bad timing because I think <laughs> I think it was a real fossil but I did leave and I went to CBS to work on Who's Who with Don Hewitt. So you got hired there, obviously. Yes, and I was so excited to be hired by Don Hewitt. It was exciting. But you weren't working on 60 Minutes. No, but he says I'm the only person who ever turned him down because when Who's Who was over, he asked me to work on 60 Minutes, and I said, I said no. 
he said that was the only person who'd ever done that. But I don't what know were you he, doing at Who's Who? I was doing personality know? pieces. I would go and chase stars like Richard Burton and Diane von Furstenberg and Lily Tomlin. Isn't that funny? They're both my friends now. Huh. And Richard Burton was, you know, I mean, I was so nervous. It was the first piece I'd ever done for Don. And we shot with 16 millimeter film and there was light leak in the camera. And I brought back a film that was no good. And I thought it was horrible. And I had to call Richard Burton directly. I knew his pseudonym in the hotel. And I called him. He was in Toronto shooting Equus. And I had just done this piece with him. And I called him. And I said, Richard, this is Sheila Evans. I'm the woman. Oh, yes, he said, I, I remember you. I said, I, I ruined the interview. You know, it was, there was light leak in the camera. He said, you poor darling. You must do it again. <laughs> and um, he was the sweetest, sweetest man. And um, so without telling John Springer, who was his PR guy, because he had told me when I called him first that I could never interview Richard Burton again. So, of course, I had to do what I had to do. I refilmed him in New York. And John Springer dug his nails into my arm and he said, don't you ever do that again. Call Richard directly. Went right around him, right? <laughs> well, you know, but I got the interview. And I got him to sing How to Marry a Woman again. Was there a lesson in that in terms of really gotta going do, for what you have to do? Gotta do what you gotta do, especially when you're not hurting anybody. And just because someone's mean doesn't mean they're right. But you, you said that you turned Don Hewitt down to work on 60 Minutes. You were the only person to ever do that. You said, well, oh, I, what you know, maybe that's like my apocryphal memory, but that's how I remember it. I didn't, I would never turn Don to it. Don you it down. I mean, he and Mike are probably my mentors in this business. And they're certainly my mentors in aging. But um, I couldn't go around with a correspondent. There's certain things you can't do. You got to do what you got to do. And then there's certain things you can't do. It, it was very difficult for me to go around with a correspondent to do all the research, to do all the pre questioning, and then have someone come and ask the questions off what was then teleprompter. Because your heart would go out of you. I mean, like, I had this very close relationship with Lily. And then Barbara Howard would come in and ask my questions of Lily. I didn't want to be on camera, but I began to think you didn't need to have a correspondent. Um, just like we learned on The Dream Machine. That the, that's why I asked if you were going to ask me questions. That the person being questioned is the star of the show. The you subject. are. You are. No, but I mean, I mean the, this no, but I mean the star of a story does not yeah. have to be interpreted by a correspondent. You know, you don't have to have somebody say, and then we went to find Jenny Smith, and she was, you know, sitting by the fire mourning the loss of her son in the Gulf War. You don't have to do that. You just simply have to have Jenny tell her story. And the 60-minute style, which was so brilliant, um, and was based on those great superstars, you know, at the time it was Mike, and it was Dan, and I think it was, I can't remember who the other ones were, and Morley Safer, and... Um, Reasoner, Harry Reasoner. I mean, these people were superstars, and they, the, tele, the television audience wanted them. But I wanted the stories. I didn't want the correspondence. And um, that was why I thought that wasn't right for me. And the, 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 uh, the model of the dream machine 
the accidental model on purpose of the dream machine, which was stories told without interpretation, began to be what I really wanted to do. And then I knew what I wanted to do. So now we're at the point in the narrative, finally... Unemployed again. Unemployed again, but finally we, we're about to get to HBO, so tell me how that happened. You, you knew what you wanted well, to do. You wanted to do this kind of particular okay, kind I'll of tell you exactly what happened. Who's Who was in the process of being canceled. And Don was looking for people for 60 Minutes. And he'd interviewed a few people, of which I was one of them. And I was afraid to turn him down, although I ultimately did. Simultaneously, I heard that there was something called home box office, which I didn't know what it was. And um, they were looking for a director of documentaries. And the truth is that I thought, <laughs> and this is very honest, but I'll go for it. I thought, I was a member of the Writers Guild, and I thought that if I could be a member of the Directors Guild, then I could get total psychiatric coverage instead of 50%. I could get 50% and 50%. So I thought, well, why am I going to stay at 60 minutes? I don't really want to do that. I, I like these correspondents. I love them, but I don't want to, I don't want to make a story and then turn it over and then interpret it. And I'm not the right producer for Don. So I interviewed at HBO with Michael Fuchs and, um, he was sort of brash and interesting and, I found out what HBO was, and they wanted a director of documentaries. I thought that meant, because I'd never been in a corporation, that I was going to direct them, and then I'd be a member of the Directors Guild and the Writers Guild, and then maybe I could get more jobs, I'd get great health coverage and all that stuff. So I bought very comfortable shoes. So I left CBS, and I bought very, very comfortable shoes for walking, because I figured I'm going to be directing documentaries. So you're going to be out in the street. Yes, I'm going to be directing documentaries for this cable thing that I read about. I didn't really understand what a cable was, you, but I knew you, it was you clear. You didn't one of those things. No, well, it was, yes, I mean, it was eight day. hours yeah. a day, and it was something yeah. called cable, and it was, you know, and I've seen a lot of public access stuff, but, I, you know, I, I, I didn't know it was the future. I'd love to say I read about it, and I knew this was the future, and I thought I'll start anywhere, <laughs> because it will be the... I had no idea what I was doing. I thought I would be a member of the Directors Guild, and that would be a good thing. So I came to HBO, and um, we were at the time, was in Time Life building, and I was there about two hours, and this man came in, and he said, we'd like 40 documentaries at the end of the year. And you can pick any subjects you want. And I said, oh, you mean I hire the people? This was Austin first who was in the head of HBO. I think Jerry Levin at that time was the president of HBO. And I said, you mean I'm the one who hires the people to make the documentaries? I said, I was directing them. No, no, he said, you're the director of documentaries. So that was how I knew what kind of job I had. So it started at 13 weeks, and I started calling all the people I ever worked for. Um, you know, can you make 13 parts on war? I didn't know any, I knew nothing about how to make a whole one. I'd only made a few magazine pieces on the dream machine. Um, and I'd done a lot of the man on the street stuff. And so I started to hire people. We had no business affairs department. They needed 40 shows because they were going to go from eight hours to 12 hours. They thought documentaries were a cheap form of programming. And I thought they wanted, you know, documentaries like, Winston Churchill and Hitler and, you know, World War II we did. We did a show with Consumer Reports. We did very pedantic, you know, dry documentaries. 
And that's how I began at HBO. And I had no idea what I was doing. I would call people up and they'd think I was calling them for a job and I was calling to give them a job. But I'd just been their associate producer or their line producer in some little project somewhere. And then I, we, we didn't have, t- we didn't have Nielsen's then. But I'm being a very competitive person. My, everyone who knows me will tell you. I noticed that the movies were doing better than my documentaries. And I thought, why should what I'm doing not be doing as well as something else? And um, From a ratings standpoint? Yeah, I mean, we, we had different ratings then. They were called, um, I forgot what they were called. They had some total subscriber, TSS they were called, Total Subscriber Satisfaction. And, um, you know, they, they, you, I saw what they liked. They liked the R-rated movies. And they liked the adventure movies, and they certainly didn't like the historical things. And I thought, you know, I like real people. They like stuff like that's in the movies. Why don't I drop Winston Churchill and put those two things together and make stories about real people that are like movies? Um, and so, again, almost accidentally on purpose, you know, I took A and Z and got together the middle What's the middle of A and Z? I guess it's a 13th M- letter. M, N, whatever. N- so yeah, I decided to make a marriage between reality and the excitement of movies or theater and forget Winston Churchill and Hitler. And I did so many of those. And they were fascinating. And I was so well read. And I read books. It's like a barner to come to HBO. And But maybe I should put theater and film together with reality and see if we could be more successful. And we were. I started to do R-rated documentaries. I started to do documentaries that were about things that were volatile, uh, about drugs, about teenage pregnancy, but not in the way the networks were doing them, not with correspondence, but, you know, the story of a 16-year-old girl or um, the story of a murderer or, uh, you know, a show called Coupling about unusual sexual practices among various couples and you know, I started to use the R of HBO to the reality advantage and um, create sort of limitless boundaries for what reality could do. Um, and that meant we could do everything from a program about the Second World War and a woman who had survived it to something about hookers, you know, and uh, prostitution. And um, so I've kept that going. But when you started this, you came mm -hmm. in to HBO and, you know, to do the documentaries and Churchill and, you know, the... No, they didn't tell me what to do. No one ever told me. They told me 40. I remember the number 40. So they just said, do it. Whatever it is, we got to... We need need time. We need need to fill time. We don't want to spend a lot of money. What kind of money did you have per... Production. We didn't have budgets. You didn't have. You just. We had just, no business. We didn't even have a business affair, original programming business fairs. They were doing the, the polka festival somewhere and a few stand-up comics. It was the really beginning, beginning of HBO. It was so exciting. It was like you know, just anything could happen. I mean, it was scary exciting, because maybe some people knew what they were doing, but I can tell you, I did not know what <laughs> I was doing. Um, but that didn't either inhibit you, nor did anybody else at HBO well, I, inhibit you. I had, at this point, begun to believe that the truth of all things was probably that nobody really knew what they were doing. And that, Not just you. 
But I never said that. <laughs> and I'm not sure that's true. I'm sure there's some people that know what they're doing. But um, at least I thought people knew as much, maybe sometimes more, but not much less than I knew about what they were doing. I mean, I, you know, I thought that I had had the right background to make something of real people and that I could do it as well as anybody else could do it. And I certainly had been trained by very good people. Al, Don Misher, um, the experience at CBS, uh, you know, just just watching the stories that worked. I once heard Don Hewitt say, he was in an editing room, it was very, very late at night, and I heard him say to someone, that isn't sexy enough. And it was an interview with Kissinger. And what did he mean by that? I don't know, I was too afraid to, you know, at that point. Those names like Don and Mike were scary to me. I would never say what did you mean by sexy, but I think I know what he means now. It wasn't hot. It wasn't anything that people were really going to watch. It wasn't different, you know. Um, you know, 60 Minutes is a cowboy show. It's three cowboys who go out to right wrongs, or four. Now they have girl cowboys. Those were boy cowboys when I was there. I mean, everything that works has a theatrical or a movie or a plot association with something that has been successful before. Um, there are probably not that many stories anyway. Was there something when you started this change in direction, mm -hmm. a particular documentary that you did that, that stood out as you felt that you were... You know, I think something interesting that? that happened. It happened with Winston Churchill. He, I, You wouldn't think that that would have been the one, but it was around Winston Churchill. Um, because Winston Churchill, I read somewhere, and we had it in our f half hour, which was not an exceptional half hour. Um, when they, he was asked what his deepest regrets were, he said that his father had not been able to see him be a success. And when you see a great man have such a small human request. It's sort of the key to what matters. And you don't have to chase down Winston Churchill's or superstars to find those kind of lines. So I think from that, I always remember that because to me it was the high point of, of his life. Just like it was the high point when I found out that Hitler had one testicle. You know, when you try to imagine and that he was a mediocre architect. You know, the, the, the things about famous people that made them crazy or interesting were the things that happened to real people, the deficits of character, the imperfections of their physical selves, um, the need to be loved by their parents. You know, all these things seem to be things that would happen to everybody if I could just get them and tell stories about them. And to me, the most exciting stories and the best documentaries are really the ones that are about people that do extraordinary things. And by extraordinary, I don't mean climbing Everest. Um, it may be murder, and it may be um, dying nobly, but it's not necessarily what you think it is. But I, I, I learned from those shows that we worked on. I learned mostly from the movies and how well they did. I learned a lot from theater, and I learned from my really my three mentors. Mike and Al, and certainly Don Hewitt. And Don, because of the vigor, the incredible vigor and spirit that he would infuse in people, and I have, I, 
I did a piece, when I did a piece on Lily Tomlin, he called, Richard Burton piece that finally came through, he called me that night to tell me that it was the best piece he'd ever seen on a personality. And the next day I said to Andy Lack, who's now the head of NBC, I said, Andy, Don called me last night and told me that my piece was Don, the best piece he'd ever seen. He said he told me that about my Lillian Hellman piece. <laughs> <laughs> Don has a childlike, I can't explain it, energy. I don't know if he has it now. I haven't worked for him for a number of years, but occasionally we've been on the phone about things for what he does. He has a vigor for the experience of life, you know, and, and for the way people live it and do it and all that. And although they do do celebrities, they do all kinds of people in 60 Minutes. And you know what else is great about Don and Mike? They were my superheroes. But they're just guys, you know, and and um, you really can't in this business because you're relying on real people to make your living. You can't become arrogant in what you achieve. And those men are not arrogant. There are people in our business who become very, very arrogant. They leave aside the, you know, the person who sweeps the office at night. But the fact is that that person could be the source of their next story, you know, and um and also, jobs are very fragile. I mean, I've had this job for a long time, but it's very hard for me to take it for granted. I still think, although I'm not afraid, I still think I could lose it. And I know when you don't have the job, you don't have the power. That the day you leave HBO, your phone doesn't ring anymore. And so many people mistake the power of their organization for their own power, when in fact, and I've seen it here, the next day they're out of work and nobody calls them anymore. So I've been a great survivor here. I've watched, you know, many empires fall and, you know, known people topple. Um, so you can't really be arrogant. And one thing about Al and Don and Mike, they're not arrogant people. They're, they still call people that work for them on the phone and tell them they did a great job. When we did the depression show... Mike called me 6 o'clock in the morning to tell me something he didn't like about that show. But the ferocity of a 25-year-old man who had just made his first documentary. I think this is too long, and I think this is too short. And I, I was, you know, I mean, he was 80 at the time when he called. It's just a passion for what they're doing? For the truth, as they see it, as they believe it. Um, you know. And doesn't that motivate you, too, the passion for the truth? I guess, as close as you can get to it. Maybe if we all told the truth, we'd all shoot each other. I think the passion, well, the truth is the passion to get as close to what motivates behavior as possible and not bore people. Remember, all this stuff sounds real good if I was teaching a course in psychology, but I'm not. I'm in a business in a corporation, and I have to make money for them, and I have to make people watch. So, you know... But there's, you know how there are no, no cowards in a, what is that word, no atheists in a foxhole? There are no boring people in a hospice. No one dying is boring. I mean, I've done so many shows about dying. There is no Alzheimer's person who isn't fascinating. There's no young person dying of cancer who isn't Joan of Arc. Even in fear, you know, it's just there are certain situations that bring out in people the most extraordinary qualities. Um, psychopaths are interesting. 
They're like people with a missing limb, you know? You have to be open to see it. You have to be willing to listen. Yeah. Just going back to something you said a moment or two ago about, you know, if for some reason you left and nobody would call you. I mean, here's a few reasons why they call you. Uh, productions, <laughs> you productions you've worked on. You know, I have to get this in here. Yeah. 39 Emmys, I think okay. these numbers are right. 17 Peabody's, including one for you personally as a career recognition. And uh, 10 Academy Awards. Right. So I think that, you know, that's they kind of... They still don't call. They still wouldn't call. Yeah. I'm not saying you can, you know, rest in those laurels, but that's that's you can't rest on anything. An impressive achievement. I mean, for you as well as for HBO. Hey, listen, I'm happy. I'm yeah. glad to have those things. Yeah, I shine them, them and I leave them and I like them. But I'm just telling you, nobody calls you when you don't have a job. When you don't have the money to pay for that person's project, nobody courts you. As a matter of fact, people, no, no. I mean, I left HBO for three years to be an independent producer, and the phone did not ring. And what what time period was that? In? My son was small, 70, 80, 80 and a half to about 84. And I didn't make a living because I poured over my subjects too much. And I did two shows. I did Eros America, which was a sex show, and I did Brain Games, which won a Peabody, which I got the idea from a placemat. My son is very hyper, and the placemat was the only thing that would keep him in place, you know, complete the dots and do all that. And... I was doing Eros America Cinemax then. It was the first sex reality show, and I knew it would be a success, and I didn't want to give it away. this is an independent? Independent right, producer. Right, okay. And I had my own little office, and everything was very charming, except I, I wasn't making a living. That was the only problem. I mean, I really wasn't making a living. Um, I wasn't smart enough. I didn't know enough about finance. HBO owned everything, and I was really a producer for hire, and I was... I, I, you know, I'd like to work so much. I wasn't smart about the deal. And why was Eros America and Cinemax versus HBO? Because HBO was tentative about sex programming at that time, but I wanted to do it so badly. And Michael let me do it on Cinemax. And um, I had gathered these books from the 60s that had been banned, Eros. And I said, you know, and, and it was a very successful show on Cinemax. So when I came back, I transferred that to Real Sex on HBO. Um, and then Brain Games I did really for David, for my son, because I felt that I spent so much time at work and I wasn't really, and it seemed to be the only thing that interested him was the placemat. And so I brought the placemat in and um, to Michael, I think. I can't remember who was my boss. I mean, literally the placemat? Oh, yeah, literally the placemat. <laughs> complete. And I made a show out of that placemat. Um, you know, I went and got Victorian rainy day books and I did you know what's wrong with this picture and like a be a you know a airplane would fly over something and we, we call I mean it was all kinds of things I did sounds and you try to figure out what the sound was just by listening and seeing the sound go up and down I did whatchamacallits which were things where you'd see little pieces of a picture like the Statue of Liberty and as the picture was filling up you would try to the kid would try to yell out at the television what it would be and um, it was a great gift to be able to make that show because it involved me, you know, sort of two worlds combined, personal and work. And and then it won a Peabody. And when it won a Peabody, I couldn't get back to HBO in those four years. The phone never rang. I didn't make any money. Eros was a successful show. They wanted to, me to keep making Eros America, but I wasn't making any money on it. And my world was pimps and whores and hookers and strippers. And they would call all the time. And I knew everybody's name. And I thought, this is ridiculous. And that's why I said, 
you better let me do brain games because I'll never work again. You know, I meet somebody on the street. What are you doing? I'm doing a show about hoes and dips. And stuff. So then I did brain games. And when brain games won a Peabody. Was that your first, by the way? My first. Peabody? No, the first Peabody I won for HBO. This is my. Okay. But, this, but this was. HBO had not submitted the show. They didn't think it was good enough. I submitted it by myself. Just out of spite. And it won. And so the day that it won, I didn't know it had won. Michael called me to tell me it won. And uh, and it hadn't been announced yet, but he always would hear things before anybody else would hear them. And he called me in my office, and I hadn't heard from him in a long time. I said, Michael, please let me come back to HBO. And he said, okay. We'll take you back. We'll take you back. But you'll do family, and you'll do docus. And so I came back. And then the phone rang. And I got flowers, and people called me, and, <laughs> and I was popular. Like again, right? I was popular. People liked me. I was different on Wednesday than I was on Tuesday because I had a job, and HBO was a big machine and still is a big machine. Um, so you said you were, so you came back, you were doing documentaries as well as family stuff. Right. And the documentary by that point had been liberated. Because of Eros America on Cinemax, the R-rated documentary now could take full swing. And I went for it. I mean, I did Real Sex and I did Taxi Cab Confessions and I did Shock Video and Talk about, know, I uh, did Private Dicks and I did, I mean, I just let the human body just have a good time. <laughs> I just thought, you know, the first sex show we ever did here, we had a sex consultant and uh, her name was Shirley Zausner. Just to get, get it straight. Zausner. Yeah, to make sure we weren't being purient. Yeah. And slowly I began to believe that sexual freedom and First Amendment issues were very tied because the more I read about sex and the more I read sex in literature, I realized the freedom of literature and the restrictions of television. And then since HBO was, you could select when you wanted, you didn't have a kid, didn't have to watch sex. I mean, they had burning bodies at seven o'clock, but you couldn't have two people, you know, especially if they were black and white, hugging each other at night or being naked. And so I began to be sort of <laughs> a sexual zealot. Michael always said that I was the least likely person to do sex programming. But once I started doing it, I became the most likely person to do it because I really, um, I thought it was fun. I thought it was great. I thought it was all, what a, how great the society is so repressed or they wouldn't be very successful. Um, and of course, a lot of this involves real people, not just... It all involves yeah. real people. And it involves behaviors of real people. And people who are sexually free, interestingly enough, are some of the honest, most honest, nicest people in the world. That sexual repression seems to be at the core of so many peculiar behaviors. Um, and the wonderful thing about the show was, you know, we go out and test it and everybody would say they didn't see it. And yet the ratings were like sky high and... Oh, yeah, I think I caught it once. I think, I, yeah, it's not for me. I think I watched it. And, but times have changed now. People say, I watch it and I like it. You know, there's a whole new, I guess Sex and the City has had a lot to do with that. But maybe Real Sex has had a lot to do with it, too. Well, G-string divas, you know, yeah. all this stuff. I mean, what's the big deal, for Christ's sake? You know. But talk, talk about... Um, you know what the networks do? Like, if it's sweeps, they suddenly get very interested in date rape. They do all these programs on date rape and and uh, uh, sex killers and you know, but really what they're doing is they're trying to get ratings because they're seeing women in bikinis running around. Here I worked at a place where we could have women in bikinis and they could take them off, and I didn't have to pretend it was a piece about date rape. 
didn't mean I couldn't do a serious documentary about date rape. But, and you can um, do it besides just doing it in May and November, too. Yes, I could do it besides <laughs> May and November. Well, really, one of your signature reality sex confession, mm -hmm. and I've already given away what we're talking about, is taxi cab confessions. Talk about the, uh, the genesis of that, where that came from. Taxi cab was another one of those accidents. Ta the um, telepictures had a syndicated show that they were trying to sell on taxi cabs. And it was a daytime show in which taxi cabs would pick up people and they brought it to us. And it was really boring. <laughs> you know, these little well, girls going to school, yeah. you know, okay. maids going to work, people going to school. And talking about know. their lives. But yeah, and the cameras were kind of, it was, it was you know, it was, but the concept to me of hiding a camera in a taxi cab, having this R-rated thing that we had, I thought was very interesting. And on the original taxi cab that they brought us, there were there was one ride which could not be in the show because it was about a transsexual, and that wasn't. They were looking for a daytime show. And um, that quite that like one this. transsexual who talked about her parents rejecting her and she really had a dick and she really, I would say that she really gave she was the blueprint for taxi cab um, it was by it was a fluke that she would be out in the daytime and so I thought why don't we send them out at night on a pilot and see what happens go out like around nine and uh, keep filming till like five in the morning in New York and that's what we did and it was unbelievable what came back not all of it and certainly not every ride but it was the nightlife of New York it was the the sad people who work through the night, the sex workers, the cops, you know, the, it was interesting. I mean, it may be tired now, I don't know, but it's, it was for at least three years, it was a really good show. Very oh, surprising. But we got kicked out of New York by the taxi you limousine commission under Giuliani. Sense. The original taxi and limousine commission was very sympathetic to the show, but we went and pleaded our case in front of the taxi commissioner and she was, I guess I could say she was vile. She didn't think it was befitting the image of New York. She oh, they're very high-class cats. Giuliana, right? Giuliani, and she thought it wasn't safe for the taxi drivers or whatever. And so we were kicked out of New York, which was a tremendous blow to me because the New York taxi driver is like the Statue of Liberty, you know. He's a really important thing. But nonetheless, maybe we'll be able to get back to New York. So the last three years we've been doing it in Las Vegas. Which is okay, because it's a one-party consent state, and they like us there. As the only female CEO to have led a top-ten cable operating company, Colleen Abdullah learned growing up that all people deserve respect and to always give back. In 2002, after several leadership positions that got her close to the top in cable and satellite companies, Abdullah took the reins at WOW Internet Cable and Phone and had the opportunity to realize her lifelong vision of a true service culture. The results during her 12-year tenure? Highly satisfied, empowered, and accountable employees, plus 19 JD Power Awards for customer satisfaction. Not to mention quadrupling WOW's customer base, often exceeding revenue goals and generating unprecedented shareholder value. Abdullah is also widely respected for her philanthropy and advocacy on behalf of disenfranchised women and children. I'm Jana Henthorne, and we're here today taping Colleen Abdullah's oral history. Colleen is the chair of the board of WOW, Internet, Cable, and Phone, and the former CEO of WOW. This is part of the Hauser Oral and Video History Program at the Cable Center, 
and it's December 9th, 2014. Colleen. Hi, Jenna. Hi. You grew up in Canada, mm -hmm. and you worked in your father's restaurant at a very early age, and I'm sure that somehow shaped, shaped your experiences. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it was a small town in Western Canada, Saskatchewan, and they were, we, Dad was a Lebanese background, and his family struggled with some prejudice, you know. It was, uh, they used to have rocks thrown at their home, you know, saying, go back on your camel, and it was really a tough upbringing for them. And he was determined that the way you gained respect was you did well. You worked really hard, you took nothing from anyone, and uh, you helped other people, and that's the way you gained respect. So my father, at a very young age, I think his first job was six. By 11, he had the biggest paper route in town. And by 19, he had uh, got some loans, opened a f the first drive-in in Western Canada, just got an old box car, gutted it, and all his friends and my mom and her friends got on, you know, they got on roller skates and they would take the hamburgers out to the car and it became a big hit. And from there, he just built uh, a restaurant business. He had four or five restaurants at one given time. And so all of us kids, there were five of us, we all had to work from the time we looked old enough, not that we were legal, but that we looked <laughs> old enough. And for girls, as you know, that's around 12. Oh. So I've been working since I was 12. And what struck me about the way my parents operated and um, how they managed relationships was, was very unique in that if you look at the restaurant business, it's hard to keep people. Well, I grew up with waiters and waitresses. I went off to college, came back, they were still there. You know, my sisters got married, they were still there. He had people working for them for 20 years. And it was always because I think of sort of three basic principles. One is that my parents felt that you never treat somebody like you're better than them. And you, they should never treat you like that. Everybody is equal. No matter how much money you have or success you have, it doesn't make you better than the next person. And the second thing I noticed is that they would share the wealth. If the businesses did well, everybody received an extra bonus. If a family got in trouble, people gathered together to help them. Um, and lastly, I think it's about knowing what you don't know. My dad, you know, there were lots of aspects of the business he wasn't that great in, but he knew it. He knew what he was good at, and he hired the best of people that would complement his skills. So even though that was never said to me, literally, it's what I observed. So when I went off to work, I thought those were sort of the principles I would see modeled. Now, before those first jobs, you, you went to college, and how right. did you decide where to go to college? I didn't know what I was good at. I really wasn't good at anything. I was just average at everything I did. <laughs> That's and hard to believe. It's true. And so I remember at dinner one night, my sister's now husband, who they were dating at the time, said, well, you're really good at talking. Why don't you do something that has to do with talking? And I thought, well, I want to be Barbara Walters. So I'll go to journalism school. I'll go to broadcasting school. And there was a great school in Calgary, Alberta, Mount Royal University. 
And so I went there, and after about a year of journalism school, I realized I was just a so-so writer, and I just didn't like what I felt to be the intrusiveness of reporting. And uh, so I, I stopped that, went into broadcasting for a little while, realized how hard it was going to be to work your way up. You don't just get a job looking cute on TV and reporting. You had to go out and slog it through a lot of small markets <laughs> throughout Canada. I didn't want to do that. So I ended up in public relations quite by accident and got my first job in Calgary at the largest PR firm in Western Canada at the time. And then how long was, was it until you transitioned into the cable industry? How long before you got into television? Really? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, Possibly not Barbara Walters. <laughs> no, darn it. Um, now that she's retired, there's a slot there. Uh, I was in advertising in Calgary for about three years. Then I got a job offer to go to an ad agency in Cincinnati, Ohio. So I took it thinking, oh, it'll be a couple years stint. It'll be fun. Um, I remembered in grade three having to go to a speech therapist because they said I spoke like an American. <laughs> and that was brutal in Canada. Because you see, <laughs> in Canada, you say your oh, vowels. You're me cry laughing <laughs> you, already. You say, you say your T's. You know, in America, you guys go Betty. At home, it's Betty. You know, so I had to learn how to enunciate my vowels and my T's and everything. So. When I got this chance to go to the States, I thought, well, they said I spoke like American. I might as well go for a couple of years and just have some fun and come home. Because I was around 23 years old. And I was in the ad business for about a year. And oh my gosh, I felt sort of like Dorothy. You know, it's from Kansas. It was like this small time girl. Dorothy in this from big Calgary. Dorothy from, yeah, <laughs> Dorothy from Calgary. It was just very different. It was faster pace. It was more competitive, uh, it was wilder. Everybody was sort of doing drugs and sleeping with each other and sleeping with the clients. And I had clients that wanted to sleep with me. And it was like, oh my God, I gotta go home. So I quit. First thing I've ever really quit. And I was getting ready to leave when I got a call from a gentleman who uh, taffed broadcasting. It was a big broadcasting company, the largest at the time in Cincinnati, and one of my clients prior to leaving was Warner Cable, which is now, then became Warner Amex, and then Time Warner. They had become a client of mine um, in the fall of that year, and they were coming up on a franchise renewal. They hadn't met a lot of their franchise requirements. They wanted us to put this PR campaign together that would um, assuage the, the franchises and get people to sign up before year end because they were missing their numbers. So I went on a crash course of cable. And there was a fabulous man who ran their call center and marketing group. And he just took me under his wing. And he, I went on truck rolls. I went door to door selling. I listened to phone calls. I just got immersed in the industry. And it's right when that research came out with the truck chasers. Do you remember that research? I sure do. It was like the first research done mm -hmm. and how people were chasing the cable truck. They wanted it so much. So that's right when, about when this was. So I learned quite a bit about the industry. I wrote their marketing plan to meet their objectives. We met the objectives and it was a very successful effort. This gentleman from Taft had a friend over at Warner Amex. Anyway, he'd read the plan. He contacted me and said, 
do you know of a company called TCI? I said, no. He said, it's the largest cable company. And we, as broadcasters, went to them and said, we want to learn about your industry. You can learn about ours. Why don't we partner on some cable systems? And that was the first partnership that TCI got involved in. Oh. There were many, right, right, that we know about, but that was the first. And there were about 200,000 subscribers involved in Michigan and New England area. And so this gentleman said to me, um, we need somebody to go down to the main system in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. We're losing customers. It's, it's, there's problems. TCI has been running it, but we'd like to go in and see what's happening. Would you do a five-week consulting gig for us? And I thought, well, why not? So I delayed the U-Haul <laughs> and, and told my parents I wasn't flying home and all that stuff or coming home. And I went out to Cape Cod not knowing really what I was going to do. I've never been a consultant, five weeks, blah, blah, blah. So I just landed and met the general manager. And it was at the time when mid-band converters were being rolled out. You know, the ones with the wire and even the remote had a wire remote. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. And they had spent no money explaining to customers what this box was, what this mid-band converter was, what, what these new channels were and why they were going to get charged more. So people were literally driving past the office and throwing the mid-band <laughs> converters oh. out the window, saying, <laughs> take your converter and shove it. I mean, it was not a happy time at the cable system. This is quite an opportunity. Oh my, that's how I looked at it. marketing person. <laughs> that's, what, that's how I looked at it. So what do you do when you don't know anything? You talk to the people who are doing the work every day, right? So for right. the first two to three weeks of my five weeks, I just met every person in the cable system. Uh, every call rep, every technician, uh, the data center people, and, and, and interviewed them and asked them what's going on and what could we be doing differently. Put that all into a marketing plan, presented it to the board of directors, and uh, one of my recommendations was, you don't have the right marketing sales guy. You know, he's not doing what he needs to do. He should go and here's what you should do um, instead. And I presented, they thanked me, I was getting my bag and I was leaving the cable system and one of them came running out and said, uh, hey, listen, we've fired, blah, 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 <laughs> the marketing guy, and we'd like to offer you the job. Wow. And it immediately, being a girl, I felt bad that I had hurt somebody else in someone's career. And I was like, no, I didn't, I didn't mean that because I really didn't intend that at all. But they said, well, we've done it and we'd like to hire you. Will you do it? So again, called my parents and said, I'm staying. I don't know for how long. It probably won't be very long, but I'll be in Cape Cod. And 15 years later, you know, I was still at TCI. So that was my entree story. into the cable business. I worked as the marketing director for TCI Taft Cablevision. Um, it moved to Grand Rapids. Then it moved to Cincinnati. And in 89, um, Dr. Malone was buying up a lot of the partnerships and making them 100% ownership. And so he bought up uh, TCI Taft. And I thought I was out of the industry at that point. And I got um, an opportunity to come to Denver with another partnership called Westmark, which lasted about a year. 
But I came to Denver to be the vice president of marketing for Westmark. That's when I met Larry Romrell and a bunch of the guys at corporate. When that partnership was dissolved and going to be wholly owned, again, I thought, well, now it's time to leave. Um, but Dr. Malone came to one of the vice presidents of operation, Rich Fickle, which we all know, and uh, said, look, I've bought some satellite entities in the C-band uh, time period, and I don't want to be the railroad with the airlines. I want to know what's going on in this space, so I want you to consolidate them and move them to Denver and manage them at a reasonable loss till we know what's going to happen with, um, with satellite. And so Rich came to me and said, what are you going to do? I said, I wasn't sure. I was looking, maybe going back home. And he said, well, why don't you come and do this with me? This should be interesting. And so a lot of the entities were in Seattle. We went to Seattle for about nine months, got them consolidated, moved them to Denver. And that entity was called Netlink. And Rich eventually moved on to corporate and to Liberty. And I became vice president, general manager of that. Sharon Wilson was there for a short period of time when mm -hmm. TCI bought United Artists. She came to Netlink to replace Rich for just a short period. And she did something very instrumental for me in that she said, I'm only going to be here for a while. I'm going to be going to corporate, and so you should take my place. And I did the typical, oh, I'm not ready. I can't do this. I'm not good at this. And she's just like, BS, you know, you're going to do it. And I said, no, I don't even have my master's. And everybody you were hiring back then had their master's degree. And next day I came to my office and there was a whole stack of books and enrollment forms from DU, their executive MBA program. And she said, go today, sign up your, we'll pay for it, you're going. Oh, so wonderful. wasn't wonderful. that great? Wasn't, I was mad at her at the time, but... I'm glad I did it, and I got my executive MBA through DU. It was a great experience, really tough, because in that two-year time period, she left. I did become general manager um, and vice president of NetLink, and it was, it was tough to be promoted, to be running an organization for the first time while I'm going to school. Mm. Um, but the good news was you had an opportunity, instead of writing a thesis, you could write a business plan for something. And so I wrote mine on PrimeStar, uh, the business plan for PrimeStar. And I worked on that till Barry Marshall and Brendan Clouston came to TCI Corporate. And I got a call from Barry saying, you know, we're launching this network called Stars. We don't have a marketing department at corporate. And will you come? And help with that. Well, let me let me ask you something about that marketing. So you you started up the first marketing at corporate, and and how have you seen that the whole aspect around marketing change from the early days until yeah. Yeah. today? So let's take a quick digression and talk about. No, absolutely. I think that's a great question because back then, I mean, it was still a fairly monopolistic environment, right? I mean, right. satellite was not. Uh, a going concern yet. And so marketing was sort of a misnomer. I mean, they didn't even have it at an $8 billion company at the time. There was no marketing department. And so when I came in, it was, it was seen because Barry Marshall came from the West Division, right? So he understood promotions and marketing that you needed to be doing that to increase revenues, et cetera, and maintain low churn. Um, and so 
to his credit, he said, we need to get better at this and we need to care about customer service. And oh, by the way, we've got this network we have to launch and there's no one around to orchestrate it. So I think that was a major catalyst for the position was that we needed to do that. So I think it was a sort of a necessary evil in the beginning, mm -hmm. kind of like lawyers and HR was considered in the, in the olden days. You had to have them. Right. But they've all obviously um, been raised in credibility and, um, and importance. So back then it really was tough because talk about retention, money for retention, you got laughed out of a budget meeting for that, you know, because mm -hmm. where were customers going to go? I even had right. one executive say that to me. Abdullah, why do you want a money for retention? I mean, where are they going to go? So it was tough in those days, but the Netlink experience was great because I had to get immersed in operations. I had to understand all elements of operation. And when you got into marketing, you remember this in the old days, you had to understand the billing system because there were so many constraints. Mm -hmm. You had to understand what a trap was and what the different security uh, configurations were in each system. And because TCA had consolidated by buying, right? There wasn't a lot of standardization. There were so many systems with different architecture, different security, uh, different vendors, that you, you had to know the difference between them so that if you were going to launch a new promotion or launch a new initiative, could it be executed? Right. Right? Right. So you wore a lot of different hats at yeah. TCI. And that sounds like it created a lot of opportunity. Yeah, I loved those days. I mean, I understand. I remember at one point in time, I did interview with Time Warner, and I couldn't believe how professional and structured everything was because at TCI, bless our hearts. I mean, we used to get criticized we were a bunch of cowboys, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and one level, that was true. There wasn't a lot of process and procedure, and that did cause probably some conflicts and some waste of money and energy because different people were doing the same things because it wasn't as organized as it could have been. But on the positive side, you didn't have to go through, you didn't have to accomplish this to do this. You didn't have to have this title to do that. You didn't have to be in this department to go to that department. It was just free and open and whoever took initiative and whoever worked hard. Whoever and who, raised their hand. Right. And said, you could let do, me try this. Right. Mm -hmm. You could do anything. And, mm -hmm. uh, I was never very shy or, or soft-spoken about stuff. I usually gave my opinion about things, and, and I was willing to work hard. And I wasn't married, and I didn't have children at the time. And so I was able to, um, to be there and to take initiative on things. And so I got to do a lot of different things. We just didn't act like a large company. Um, um, and so that's what I loved about TCI. But once it became... AT&T broadband and you were traveling back and forth to Jersey a lot. It just didn't feel right anymore. So I left in October of 99 and the first, my plan was to just let the nanny go and be a mom for a while. I had saved up uh, and again had been privileged and blessed that I had enough financial security. I could take some time off. So for a while I was just being mom and then I would get some phone calls from friends who had also left or gone to different places asking if I would come in and either do strategic planning with them or coaching of them or of certain individuals. And I got enough of those requests that I thought I should 
look at it seriously. I called a friend here in town that had done some coaching for me of some of the executives that had reported to me and I respected her and her process. So I asked if she would tutor me and I paid for it, but I went and learned under um, Kathy Sunshine is her name. And eventually after working with her or learning from her, she asked me to join her firm as a coach. And so I did leadership coaching for about two years. I was fascinated with, she used, um, one of her tools was a geneogram where you would map the executive's um, family history as far back as the person oh. knew. So you'd usually go to grandparents and then their parents and then their generation. And you learned a lot about the patterns of thought and behaviors and myths of the family that, that we as individuals take from our family system. And I was so fascinated by that tact by that technique that I went and studied at the Family Institute, where a lot of um, MSWs get their uh, masters of social work. And I took a few classes there and I just really enjoyed that and was doing that when I got a call from the same gentleman who got me involved with TCI Taft. And we had remained friends and we had remained in contact throughout my TCI years. And he was now in private equity and they had backed a gentleman who had a plan for a company called Wide Open West. And they felt that things weren't going as well as they could and that maybe I could come in as his uh, chief operating officer. So I met with my predecessor and uh, realized that great man, smart, uh, smarter than me in a lot of ways, but that we wouldn't really the chemistry and the way I would sort of run things would be so different. So I got back to my friend and said, no, but I do think you need someone in that role mm -hmm. for this investment to be successful. And about two or three phone calls later and uh, a change in the business model, they decided to not build. The original plan was to be the overbuilder of the West and hence the name Wide Open West. Mm -hmm. They were going to start here in Denver. It was going to be their flagship system, and then they were going to uh, get franchises and build out throughout the Western states. Well, 2000 hit, and we all know what happened, right? And that didn't get corrected. Um, everybody thought it would be done by that fall, but as we know, the market didn't bounce back till what, 04, 05? And so right in the middle of all this building and everything that, that the market crashed, they ran out of money, and so the private equity groups that owned Wide Open West at the time decided to buy some properties. So they bought the four Ameritech properties that were mm -hmm. built by Ameritech in 96 and 97. They bought them in December of 01. They were built for 1.2 billion. Ameritech, you know, phone companies build things to last, mm -hmm. and they built some great plant. They built them to compete. They built it to be internet and digital uh, with all the bells and whistles. And so they got a great deal. They bought it for about 208 million in 01. And so my predecessor and team were managing that for about eight, nine months when things weren't quite where they needed to be. So I came in in August of 02. Okay, so that's, that's quite a switch for you to go from being a cable person to what at that time an overbuilder. Yeah. Uh, oh, friends. I would what are you say doing? what the dark side. 
exactly. over to the dark side. Exactly. And people I remember said that to me. People said, what are you doing, Colleen? I mean, that's not a career builder. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't want to be a competitor to the incumbents. And uh, there is, hasn't been a successful overbuilder. That's not a really lucrative space mm-hmm. you should reconsider. What was your thought process on that? I was so enamored with the idea of being a leader of an organization. I was always, what, second, third, fourth, fifth. I was always in leadership roles for a long, I wasn't always, but I had been in leadership roles for quite some time, but I had never been in that first position Mm -hmm. where you could shape something um, to be the way you envisioned it to be. And and when I said to you early on um, at the beginning of our interview, what I noticed in my father's uh, environment and that I thought that's what I would experience when I went to corporate. Well, it certainly wasn't, right? What I experienced was a lot of uh, top-down, hierarchical sort of cultures, um, very male-dominated cultures, not a lot of women in leadership, um, and really a focus on business saying, I don't care how you get there, just get there. Make that number. And everything was around making that bottom line number. And people weren't treated properly, and process and procedure wasn't reviewed, and, and, and it just wasn't, to me, the right focus. I always wanted to be somewhere where we valued the how, because I feel that how matters in life, you know, how we're friends, how I engage with you, that matters. And, and so I was so excited about having an opportunity to go into a situation which was a turnaround situation, and and we had some really tough financial goals to meet within one quarter. We had to make Mm -hmm. more EBITDA in one quarter than they had made in the first nine months. So it was not an easy task, and that scared me for sure. I didn't have all the answers, Um, but I did what I did when I got into cable. I just went and spoke to all 600 employees at the time and said, here's what you got in me. Here's what I think I'm good at. Here's what I think I can do for this company. And here's where I need your help. And I hired incredibly great people who were smarter than me in a lot of areas. And um, so I just didn't listen to the voices about an overbuilder, about a turnaround situation. I didn't think about what I feared. I thought about what I was excited about and passionate about which was creating an environment where people would flourish and love to be there and and do their best. Because when we do our best, the results are the best that we can can generate, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And a story around that, when I first got hired, I guess it was August, I had to go to an investor meeting in in October. And um, one of the first questions I got asked, I was the only female CEO of a portfolio company. Um, I was a first-time CEO, and I think my title at the time was President COO. And so when I got asked the first question, which is, what are your plans for for WOW? I said, quite naturally, basically that when someone leaves WOW for whatever reason, they'll say they're a better person for having been there. And you should see a room full of financial analysts, <laughs> what their reaction was to that 
quite soft and tangible answer was just like the body language screamed like, what the, you know, heck. And <laughs> so I right away said, let me explain myself why I say that, you know, and then I put the numbers to it that this is where we are today. And if everybody rallies and is passionate and feels accountability and responsibility for our performance, we'll get there, we'll be successful. And sure enough, we were. And we had eight, nine, 10 straight years of overachieving our budget. Today, it's a billion two revenue company with over 3,300 employees. And um, so the growth came. So, so you've talked about how you wanted to create a different culture at WOW. Uh, talk to me about how you achieve that. What's the process that you go about to create that culture? That's a great question. And it, it's never about one person. While I was maybe leading the initiative, it was everybody at WOW embracing it, especially from a leadership perspective, because all leaders have to model it, embrace it, so that those that they serve um, will also model it. It starts with a mindset, Jana. You know, if you as a leader think, I deserve what I've got, I've worked hard to get here, and people are going to listen to what I say. They're there to serve me. If that's your mindset, if that's your value, then creating the kind of culture we have at WOW won't, won't happen. So you have to start with a, a definition of leadership that talks about serving others. For me, leadership is simply serving others in a way that brings out their best and the best in you. That's what a leader does to me. And so, if you start with that premise, you're there as leaders to serve others so that they can serve the end customer who pays for all your salaries, by the way. Then you truly have your priorities straight. There's an internal customer in an organization and there's an external. And the internal customer is most important. So in forming a culture that cares about the people and cares about their performance, that's where you start. You define your team members, your employees, as customers. And you create what we have is called the internal service structure. And you literally map every function in the organization to one another. Who serves whom in order to serve the end customer? And in our organization, that will look a little different in every industry or every company, right? But for our organization, that place, the call center, and the field as the primary customer inside our organization. Because everybody, from engineering, marketing, finance, HR, all the other, the knock, dispatch, everybody who is involved is supporting, serving one another in order to serve them so they can serve the end customer. And when you have that kind of structure in your organization, and you have a set of values that you just don't put on a poster, you have to operationalize those values, meaning you hire based on them, you recruit and orient and train and develop based on those cultures, those values. You base part of their merit and bonus increase on how they model those values. You promote based on them and you terminate based on somebody purposely violating them. If you do all that, have a set of values, operationalize them, have a service structure that defines we're all there to serve one another, 
then you will have a culture that is based on being good to one another, putting people in the right place, doing the right things, holding them accountable. That's the thing about corporate and business today, isn't it? Or maybe always, not just today. People are not held accountable enough in a productive, motivating way, not in an intimidating way, but in a motivating way. I think that's what's lacking in a lot of corporate environments. From the top all the way through the organization is a lack of accountability and ownership and passion for the goals. You know, I own this. I'm a technician. I'm a warehouse uh, manager and I'm a general manager. Whatever you are, you're as passionate about meeting those goals as the next guy. That's the kind of environment we wanted to create at WOW and I believe we have. And it's because, like I said, everybody rallied together. Now, when you try to say, how can you condense that, Colleen, into something that is easy to understand? We brought in an artist from Alchemy and we told them about our culture and we described it and they experienced it. And they, we asked people within our organization, if you had to come up, for, up with a metaphor about how we operate on this internal structure, what would it be? And we came up with something that sort of looks like Woodstock. It's like a concert. So you have the call center and the field guys on stage performing. You have the engineers and the knock and dispatch all doing the lighting and the sound. And you've got HR worrying about the talent. And you've got marketing selling the tickets. And it's a really cool uh, illustration that everybody's got up throughout the organization, this poster of the concert that represents uh, the banner is the WOW service structure and how we operate. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to experience. It's not perfect. We, we're, we have our ups and downs as a company like every organization. But overall, um, when we have scored our happiness quotient, it's in the high 90s. So it works. That's great. What's the happiness quotient? It's, a, it's a, where you evaluate four or five key areas of the culture, from engagement to accountability to strategic importance. They, they, the, the survey we used depicts five different areas that evaluates the effectiveness, the productivity, the engagement of your people. And as a result of it, how happy are they? in that environment. Got it. And it's an EQ. You know, we do a lot of work um, with our leadership on emotional quotient mm -hmm. because we've come to realize, as research has shown, that it's not just about IQ. The best leaders, the leaders who get the best performance are those with a higher EQ right. than an IQ. And so that's something that people need to really pay attention to is it's not just what you know, it's how you show up. It's how you implement what you know. It's how you engage with others um, that is really, really important. And we at WOW have not promoted, uh, not hired people who are brilliant at a particular thing that we might need, a particular skill, but they weren't, they weren't able to sort of engage and work within that cultural environment of serving others. And we've passed, passed them over because you've got to have both. No episode about women trailblazers would be complete without Ann Sweeney. Coming from a family of educators, Ann was always interested in how children learn. But instead of becoming an educator like her parents, her passion led her into children's television, 
in every role Anne undertook, beginning as a secretary at the fledgling Nickelodeon, then piloting the new FX channel to her rise as president of Disney ABC Television Group, her governing policy was be not afraid of taking risks and to focus on providing programming that people really care about. Much of the programming for children that you've come to rely on on Nickelodeon, Nick at Night, and ABC Disney would not have happened without Anne Sweeney. This interview was filmed in 2000. After um, you had your master's degree in education, what were your career choices at that time? Well, I went to Harvard really for a couple of reasons. While I was at the College of New Rochelle, I became very interested in kids and television, and really kids first and foremost. And when I started at CNR, I wanted to be a teacher. And in my first year, you had to take Psych 101 or Child Psych 101. And shortly after that started, the teacher informed us that we would have to work in a child study lab a couple of days a week. And it was really through that experience in the child study lab that I discovered that teaching was very, very difficult. And I just didn't see myself responsible for teaching kids how to read. And I remember when I told my parents, I was so afraid they'd say, well, no, 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 get over your fears or you can do it, because it was, in a sense, the family business. And instead they said, well, thank God you found out now. What is it you want to do? And I, I didn't know immediately, and I, I just knew that it was something for kids. And in my senior year of college, a friend of mine in a theater group had been a page at ABC and introduced me to the people who were hiring. And at that point, I fell head over heels in love with television. I, I didn't think there was any greater job in the world than being a page at ABC. And being a page meant that I wore a navy blue blazer and a gray skirt, and I escorted guests, and I answered the phone, and I ran for coffee, and all of the lower-level tasks, but all of the upper-level access to how television is actually made. And I really cut my teeth as a page for Good Morning America uh, on the local news, at the radio group, at the desk, and just the world opened up to me. So as I was completing my senior year of college, I felt that I still had a piece missing, and that was a deeper understanding of how kids learned. And I'd heard about a program at the Ed School at Harvard that had some of the folks who had started Sesame Street. And I went up over Christmas break that year and spoke to Jerry Lesser, who had been one of the key people on the team with Joan Gantz Cooney and Sam Gibbons and Dave Connell. And I just, it just connected for me. And I felt that the Ed School would be that piece that I was missing. And while I was at the Ed School, I, I think when I started, I believed I would end up at Children's Television Workshop, not only because my teachers had a connection, but because I had been an intern there for Sesame Street and Electric Company Magazine my senior year. But as the year wore on, I read about this new cable service called Nickelodeon that had started in Columbus, Ohio. And this was now January of 1980, and Nickelodeon had started in April of 1979. And in reading about this, I became really curious about what a full 
television channel devoted to kids programming would be. And after graduation, I took a, a short job or short, did a short stint at a production house in New York that eventually folded. And during that time, came in contact with Sandy Cavanaugh and Jerry Laybourne, who were at Nickelodeon. Sandy was the director of programming and Jerry was the manager of acquisitions. And I went in to interview for a secretarial job. And to my surprise, there were three people waiting for me in the office. And they all interviewed me. And at the end of this meeting, one of the people said, "If you," they each had a secretarial job open. And at the end of the meeting, one of them said, if you could pick any job here, meaning the other secretarial jobs for the other people, whose job would you pick? And I said, well, I would pick Jerry's because I believe I'm good at evaluating programming. I believe I understand kids. You know, I, I certainly have spent a good amount of time in my educational career trying to do that. And as we were walking out, she said, the health plan is lousy. <laughs> so I, I didn't know if that meant I'd gotten the job or I shouldn't feel badly about not getting the job. But I did get the job and I started at Nickelodeon in January of 1981. And there were 10 of us. And we were part of a company that was still fairly new called Warner Amex Satellite Entertainment Company, WASAC. And we were the programming arm. And Wacky, Warner Amex Cable, was the cable arm, the people who were going out and getting the franchises in the city and building the cable systems. And at the time, Nickelodeon was the only channel in cable devoted to children. Yes. Nickelodeon was the only channel devoted to kids, and it was in two million homes. It's had tremendous growth. Can you talk about the experience of helping to grow Nickelodeon? into the powerhouse it is today? I think the experience of growing Nickelodeon really became the way I looked at, it, it, it informed the way I looked at my career going forward and it informed the way I looked at the cable industry. We didn't know what we didn't know. We just knew we didn't want to do it the way everyone else had done it. And at that point, toy-driven animation was hugely popular. And the afternoon blocks on syndicated television and the network Saturday mornings were the powerhouses in children's television. And because we didn't want to be like everyone else, it probably took a little bit longer than any of us thought it would. But it was a time of great experimentation. There was a lot of risk taking. We were making it up as we went along and we knew that was just fine. And we were never daunted by the challenge of it because I, I think in our hearts, and I'm, I'm speaking for a very large group of people, we did believe in our own success. And we did believe that there was a place for a channel devoted to kids or a channel devoted to music or a channel devoted to something else. What jobs did you have while at Nickelodeon? I had a different job just about every year of the 12 and a half years I was at Nickelodeon. Uh, I was a secretary for a year. I became a coordinator of acquisitions and then a manager. And then we started taking commercials. So I added program standards to my 
piece of the pie. I then became a director of acquisitions. And then we were we were continuing to launch new channels. We launched Nick at Night. And then we launched a comedy channel called Ha, the television comedy network. At the same time, HBO was launching the comedy channel. And at that point, I started buying under the MTV Networks banner and bought an enormous amount of programming in a very short space of time for the April launch of this channel, which in the end did merge with the HBO channel. But it provided, the merger provided a great benefit to the MTV Networks group in that a lot of the programming that had been acquired had been acquired for the entire group and easily migrated to Nick at Night and really grew Nick at Night faster than we had originally anticipated. And Comedy Central was born out of that merger and became a channel that, you know, is still co-owned by the two companies. You've been involved in the early stages of Nickelodeon, and, and when you left Nickelodeon, you went over to FX. Mm-hmm. Um, and here at Disney, you are overseeing Disney and Toon Disney mm-hmm. and, and SoapNet. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what is involved in launching a new cable network from soup to nuts? Have a week. <laughs> I think the most important thing always is, is there a need or desire for this in the marketplace? And by marketplace, I really mean the people watching television. It really does begin and end there. And doing that homework in the very early days and being very clear about what's missing and as clear about what it is your company has to bring to the party, I think are really the two essential elements. Um, It isn't really enough to have a good idea that you are in love with. It has to be a good idea for 30 to 40 plus million people out there. Uh, Starting with understanding the audience really helps you form the kind of channel. And, And SoapNet is the most recent example of that. SoapNet was born out of the fact that Soap operas are still a very healthy genre, but suffering from a lifestyle change with its core viewers. And we took this idea of really making it easier for people to access the shows that they love out into a test situation. And we tested two different formats for the channel and very quickly learned which one would work. And then did a great amount of homework with this group of people who would be watching soaps later the same day on what additional needs they had. What else did they want? What else did they want to know? And that's how we slowly put together the pieces that became SoapNet. Uh, That's the creative process, probably equally creative as getting the deal done with cable operators and the DTH businesses. And both making sure that the deal, that this commercial venture works for both parties and that something like a soap net is perceived to be valuable. And again, that's where all of the early research comes to play. Being able to demonstrate 
that this is something that is valuable to the customers of the cable operators who are also our audience is key. Um, and then what about the marketing side of that? The marketing side is twofold. The marketing side is both to your community of affiliates as it is to the consumer and really working hand in hand with the operators and with DirecTV and EchoStar to make sure that they have all the ammunition they need to use SoapNet or any other service in a way that benefits their business. And hand in hand with that is helping the consumer find it and helping the consumer use it. In the case of SoapNet, it's very user-friendly. Um, in your career, you've had a number of very high-profile mentors, Jerry Laybourne and Rupert Murdoch. Can you talk about those experiences a little bit? Sure. I, I think I've been very fortunate to work not only with very talented people, but in very diverse companies. And I think the early lessons of Nickelodeon and Wasac were extremely valuable in my personal and professional growth. I really, that's where I became very comfortable with taking chances and with thinking outside of the box. And I think moving on to News Corp and Fox took that up to a new level. You know, that was just Wild West and getting out there with big ideas and really forging ahead and coming to Disney. I've been fortunate yet again. I, I feel like a, a walking casebook study in brands at this point, having worked for, you know, three of you know the most or three of the best known. Coming to Disney was a great lesson in working with something that had probably more history than the other two companies combined. And the Disney brand at first was quite daunting to me, but I remembered my early lessons from Nick and from Fox. And it's really be not afraid. You know, this is a brand that is loved and cherished, but this is a brand that needs to continue to grow and be important and be contemporary to its viewers, ages two to 102. And I, I think it was really that early training that helped me embrace my new job and this big brand in a way that's that's been very successful. When you left FX, you came to Disney. Can you tell us about your years at Disney? There have been four and a half years at Disney. Uh, I was hired by Jerry Laybourne, who came over as head of the group and then replaced her as head of the group two years later. Uh, the first days at Disney were really pretty amazing to me. I'd, I'd spent my whole life in basic cable and had never worked for a pay business. And at that point, Disney was doing what they called a hybrid model. They were basic some places and they were pay in others. But there was an underlying desire here to take Disney Channel basic, fully basic. And I took that as one of the goals that I had to accomplish. The, it's one thing to have a basic business strategy, but it's another thing to have a programming schedule that is really more of a pay network 
than basic. So the second goal became to move the programming strategy and the business strategy together and have them marching down the same street. And then there was the issue of this big brand and how it stays fresh and relevant and connected to its audience. And there were a series of programming and marketing moves that we used and and continue to use. That's never a goal. I always feel that uh, it's a goal that has to stay a goal. It's not something anyone can ever say, oh, we've done that. You know, resting on your laurels just doesn't work in television. And some of those moves included doing Disney Channel original movies, really kid-driven family entertainment that kids could watch, parents could come into the room, feel totally comfortable watching and, and feel engaged. And they've been stories about kids facing the issues that 9- to 14-year-olds face. It's, it's everything from divorce and remarriage to relocating uh, to the problems of puberty, you know, things that are very real to kids, expressed sometimes in very fanciful ways, but expressed in something that kids can lock into and feel is really more about their lives. Uh, The movies have helped. A lot of the off-air work that we've done has resonated as well. Uh, In particular, Zoog Disney. We discovered probably four years ago in watching kids that when they got home from school, it was homework, snack, turn on the television and turn on the computer and chatting to their friends while they watched television, chatting to their friends about what they were watching on television and this com- these communities that were forming and this interactivity in a very primitive stage that was starting to unfold. So we started to experiment. We came up with a group of characters called the Zoogs only because it was a fun sound to our ears and to you know kids who we talk to in focus groups. And we created a mythical space called the Zether. And the Zether was a space between your computer and your television set. And the Zoogs move comfortably between the two mediums, just like kids do. And we had kids register. We emailed their parents to gain permission. And then they engaged in the games and the polls and the chats that were all related to a programming block on the channel called Zoog Disney. Well, today, over 2 million registered users later, and a block that's now become a three-day weekend idea, the idea has really taken hold with kids. And I think one of the most wonderful yet surprising results is that the average age of our Zoog internet users is 14. And it, it, it's interesting to me because the Disney brand is often criticized for being young, when in fact it isn't. When in fact it is embracing the future and what's going on in kids' lives. You have been able to capture these children who are now 14 at a younger age and have brought them to this point and brought them to the internet. Do you have plans to develop other channels to keep that audience that you've been nurturing over the years? We've talked about a number of ideas. And again, it it plays back to what makes sense 
you know, if, if you're talking to teenagers, what is it that they're interested in? What is it that you would program? And I don't have those answers. Um, I think there is a channel for Disney to do for preschoolers and their parents. Our feeling about little kids and their parents, I think, is, is different than other companies out there. We really are focused on the whole life of the child that includes their family. And I think that's a characteristic that distinguishes Disney really every step of the way. What are your plans for interactivity on the channel itself? Well, Zoog Disney is really our first foray mm-hmm. into, it's our very primitive form of interactivity. But as the cable boxes evolve, as technology evolves, we feel that we're well positioned to embrace new technology and to we're ready to let it take us to places we're anxious to get to. As part of your responsibility as president of the ABC Cable Networks Group, you also have oversight over E, AV, history, biography, and lifetime. Can you mm-hmm. talk about those responsibilities? Well, I can tell you it's a wonderful group of assets run by very talented people. And I love that piece of our portfolio because it, it really does give us the whole world of the audience. Uh, Carol Black is our CEO of Lifetime and has done an extraordinary job of connecting with women and programming to women. Her public affairs initiatives are really ringing bells. I think what Lifetime has done for breast cancer research and support of women with breast cancer and getting women to find out and be checked is phenomenal. Nothing short of phenomenal. Nick Devatsis is our CEO of A&E and History. And A&E has always been a strong and impressive brand. Certainly, Biography as a franchise is absolutely famous. I think the History Channel is probably what I go to quickly when I think of Nick and how that business developed and how quickly it grew. And I really do believe that Nick Devatsis made people want to know about their history again. He made them want to reconnect with their country, want to know where they came from and where they fit in in the scheme of things. Mindy Herman is our new CEO of E, and she is a dynamic executive who I think will take E to its next level. E is just over 10 years old now and has birthed Style, their new channel, which has grown very, very quickly. And again, is an idea that I think embraces, you know, not only fashion, but everything that we consider to be style, all of the things that we live with, all of the things that we do. I think that'll be a winner. In your view, what have been some of the pivotal um, issues in the cable television in the last 20 years? Oh, I think there have been a few. I think starting with uh, the franchise battles of the early 80s and watching cities choose who would wire them and who would provide for them. 
uh, I think the regulation in the early 90s was certainly a pivotal point. And within the last couple of years, I think all of the consolidation, those to me are the three biggest markers in the last 20 years. What do you feel that some of the biggest issues are in television today from a family viewing point of view? I think parents have always needed help in understanding how kids watch television and how to talk about what kids see on television um, and encouraging them to sit down with their kids. I also think that people overall need help with technology and how to deal with all of these forces that are now coming into your home. When I grew up, we had three three big broadcast networks and a couple of local stations that came from Albany, Troy, Schenectady area. And on a clear day, we would get Channel 13 out of New York. And I grew up with cable. I grew up with a, a tower in the Hudson Valley with cable lines that ran into homes. Uh, I remember, though, when pay television started and movie channels started to come in. And what a phenomenon it was. And then followed very swiftly by video games, Pac-Man. And, and I can't even remember the name of it now, but it was the ball that bounced up against those blocks and slowly ate away with ate away at the blocks on the top of the screen. But all of I remember when all of this was happening, it suddenly felt like there were so many things to do, so many choices. And life wasn't just about school and a limited amount of television and ballet and piano and art and, and all of the other things. So it, I think the thing that parents probably need the most help on is not being crowded by too many activities or too much television. How do you feel about ratings versus what is just good solid programming for um, children? Do you think that um, most programmers today are really after the ratings more than they are delivering quality programming? It depends. At Disney Channel, we're not an ad-supported network but we care deeply about how contemporary and relevant our programming is. We care very much that kids are watching it. We care that we're connecting with kids and families. I do think though that a lot of times I see people compromise their audiences by going for ratings because ratings drive advertising dollars. You've enjoyed 20 years of tremendous success in this industry. What advice would you give someone who's just leaving college and then looking at the opportunities of cable television broadcast or the world of the internet today? I'd tell them to look at it with an open mind and to walk into it as clear-headed as possible and without any preconceived notions of what it is and to really approach it as it's still, I believe, television still is a place that is a frontier. And I don't think we've figured it out in the last 20 years because I think the next 20 years are going to be even more exciting. And we're going to be juggling many new technologies 
that change the way we think about the way we make programs and change the way we have to think about our audience. Do you have any thoughts in summary that you'd like to leave us with? I feel very lucky. I think I've been so fortunate and I didn't know it when I started. I just thought I was taking a great job at a really fresh, young company. I had no idea where it would go. I had no idea if it would last. But what I came to appreciate about it over time was the fact that it was new every day. And for me, that was probably the most important thing to learn was that as long as it was new and fresh, and as long as I could stay new and fresh in my thinking, it would be a great place to work. And I really think that's been the beauty of the cable industry for me, is that it always feels like something new is about to happen. And it always feels like we have so much more to learn and that we can get so much closer to our audience and we can provide so much more. You've just heard Women Trailblazers. We hope you'll join us again soon. Until then, this is Luke Woodruff for The Cable Center, the nonprofit educational organization that helps support and fuel the ongoing legacy of the cable industry's innovations and influence. Thank you for listening. <laughs>